Hello there again, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer, and this is episode eight. So we're on episode eight. Today, we will be focusing on United Airlines Flight 232, a scheduled flight from Denver to Chicago on July 19th, 1989. Last week, we did United Flight 811 from February of 89. Today, we're doing United Flight 232 from July of 89. For some reason, we're obsessed with United Airlines in 1989 right now. Lucky for all of you out there, joining us today on the podcast is our beloved producer and contributor to the podcast, Miss Tess Andrade. How are you doing, Tess? I'm doing fabulous. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, this past weekend was Labor Day weekend, and you were traveling, no? I was traveling. I took two night flights uh, to Boston. Sweet. And back. I like night flights. I don't know what it is about night flights. I think it's that the cabin's so quiet. It's easy to yeah. get to the bathroom. But there's just like a calm it's very peaceful. energy. Yeah, like no, it's enjoyable. It's cool. It's uh, p- people aren't making too much noise, which is always nice. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point too. I like being cool. There's so many times I'm on a plane, I feel hot. I always run hot, and there's something about nighttime that it just is cool. I guess the sun isn't baking the plane. Mm-hmm. Everybody's asleep. I feel yeah. like they get the AC cranked. You can just get under a blanket. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. So you flew what airlines did you fly again? I flew United and JetBlue on the way back. I like JetBlue. Yeah, JetBlue is great. They have a really good movie selection. Cool. Um, a really good mix of new movies, and then they have oldies like When Harry Met Sally and Rear Window. So that was nice. Nice. And then they also, I'm not sure if you're aware, but they have sort of this system where you can uh, get snacks yourself from a little pantry. Oh, that sounds pretty cool. I've heard a number of people mention that, and I haven't seen it yet. But I, I think there's something kind of endearing about like selecting your own snacks or them having oh, a yeah. fridge or a section. It's kind of like if you invited somebody to your house and you're like, yeah. help yourself, get in the fridge, grab exactly. whatever drink you want. Like, yeah, I feel, I feel like, like that, I'm helping myself to their fridge. Yeah, they're like, we're a family. You're welcome to... Access our snacks whenever you want. That's pretty sweet. They also have a flight attendant that is hired to pretend that they are your best friend's mother. Oh, that's I had no idea about that either. (laughs) It's a nice perk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing I wanted to ask you was you have suddenly had this thing thrust in your life where you're involved in a podcast on plane crashes and... I know that you said that you were a nervous flyer to begin with, but has this had a positive, a negative, a neutral effect on you? Has the podcast had any effect on your flying, like your flying experience this past weekend? Were you nervous while you were flying? What's it like? I don't think it's, it's made my fear of flying any worse. I'm not sure if it's made it better either. I think the, the correlation for me is more just the frequency with which I'm flying. So if I'm flying a lot, I get used to it and I get familiar with it. If I haven't flown for a while, it's always really hard for me to jump back in. It just doesn't feel like a natural um, state for me. It's When you think about it, you're in a box suspended and midair that's kind of a strange concept to wrap your head around yeah i think that's kind of some of the realizations that i've come to as well is if you think about it it's it's mind-blowing when it you're is. like i'm in this metal container at thirty-seven thousand feet in the yeah. sky going 600 miles an hour that's like yeah kind of shocking it's amazing 
and but your brain can go to a negative place. So the point is to not let your brain go to that exactly. negative place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I wasn't scared until a couple, I think I had a couple formative experiences when I was young. I saw a friend be terrified of flying to the point Mm -hmm. where she was, you know, sobbing and throwing up and Mm -hmm. these visceral reactions to flying. And then I had another flight when I was young where we hit turbulence and a woman behind me started praying very, um, I don't want to say theatrically but she was she was praying and it was it felt very dramatic at the time no i think if i was a kid and was in any situation and i saw an adult acting like they were having a near-death experience i'd be like oh man maybe they know something i don't know yeah no it was really terrifying my dad turned around and asked her to stop so shout out to my dad (laughs) thanks for defending my job mr andrade (laughs) I think sometimes not overthinking the experience of flying can be helpful. Just turning off your brain, reading a good book, watching a movie. Yeah, just realizing how safe it is, how about how you are on your way to going to do something amazing and fun, and you could be sitting in your house and watching TV, but it's kind of boring, so don't do that. Yeah, I think it's always been easier to fly to an exotic location than fly away from one. Yeah, it's depressing when you're flying away from one, going yeah, back home. exactly. Like That's your, when my anxiety your sort vacation of time to flare is up. Over. Exactly. <laughs> As you all know, I'm not a pilot or an aeronautical engineer. I'm a person that likes to go on trips, but I get pretty nervous about flying, so we've been doing this podcast as an anxiety exposure therapy of sorts, trying to learn more about the world of aviation in the hopes that learning more will tamp down the anxiety surrounding flying. We realize that every accident we discuss on this podcast is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. We don't want to be careless or insensitive about someone else's misfortune. We just view these plane accidents as historical events and like to talk about why each accident occurred and how each accident eventually led to making air travel as safe as it is today. Thank you to everyone out there that's been listening and supporting the show. We appreciate all the reviews that have been streaming in on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. If you have a moment and can leave us a review or rating, we'd be very thankful. We live for reviews. It's our lifeblood. Vampires like blood. We like reviews. (laughs) Give us reviews. (laughs) If you want to follow us on Twitter, our Twitter handle is PlaneCrashPod. PlaneCrashPod. And feel free to send us some thoughts or suggestions. Shall we get started on United Flight 232? Sure, yeah. United Airlines Flight 232 was a scheduled flight from Stapleton International in Denver, Colorado to O'Hare International in Chicago, Illinois on the afternoon of July 19, 1989. The plane was a McDonnell Douglas DC-10. For those of you that have listened to our previous episodes, this is the same type of plane of that Western Airlines flight from LAX to Mexico City in 1979 with Eduardo Valenciano on board. The DC-10 has three engines. Engine number one is the engine on the left wing. Engine number two is at the back of the plane, right below the vertical stabilizer on the tail of the plane. The vertical stabilizer is that piece of the plane that looks like a shark fin sticking up in the air on the tail of the plane. Engine number three is the engine on the right wing. So the DC-10 has three engines. This particular DC-10 was delivered to United Airlines in 1971. The plane had almost 17,000 flights in its history for 43,401 flight hours. 
So in 1989, it's an 18-year-old plane that's been used heavily by United Airlines. The captain of United Flight 232 was Al Haynes. He was born in Paris, Texas. He was 57 years old at the time. He started working for United Airlines in February of 1956 at age 24. He had 29,967 flight hours, 7,190 hours in the DC-10, so he's a very experienced pilot. His first officer was William Roy Records, age 48 years old, had around 20,000 flight hours, 665 hours as a first officer on the DC-10. He was originally hired by National Airlines in 1969, and then he worked for Pan Am before eventually coming to United. The second officer on the flight was Dudley Dvorak. He was age 51, had around 15,000 flight hours, he had 1,900 flight hours in the Boeing 727 and only 33 hours in the DC-10. United Airlines Flight 232 had 285 passengers on board, 11 crew members for a total count of 296 human beings on the plane. A large number of the passengers were children because United Airlines was having a special promotion that day. For every adult that purchased a ticket, a child was allowed to fly for only a penny. So Flight 232 pulls back from gate B9 and takes off from Stapleton International in Denver at 2.09 p.m. The flight for the first hour is pretty normal. The NTSB report called the first hour uneventful. A meal is served in the cabin. It's just another typical flight. The plane reaches 37,000 feet. It's cruising altitude, and the autopilot is engaged. At 3.16 p.m., an hour and seven minutes into the flight, as the plane is making a right turn over Iowa on its way to Chicago, a loud bang is heard from the back of the plane. This bang is followed by a heavy vibration. The plane starts shuddering. The captain, Al Haynes, quickly notices via the engine instruments that the number two engine, the engine at the base of the vertical stabilizer on the tail of the plane, isn't working. So he has it shut down, and this kills the vibration. Captain Haynes announces on the plane's PA, Sorry, folks, we shut down the number two engine. Going to be a few minutes late to O'Hare. He plays it off calmly at first, trying to set passengers' minds at ease. But the plane is suddenly turning very hard to the right, 40 degrees. The first officer, William Records, turns off the autopilot and attempts to straighten out the aircraft using his control column, but the plane doesn't respond. The second officer, Dvorak, notices that the hydraulics for all three hydraulic systems on the plane are reading zero. So for some reason, the number two engine is suddenly inoperable, the plane's turning really hard to the right and losing altitude, and all three hydraulic systems are gone, which means flight controls are gone. Both the captain and first officer are pushing, pulling, turning their control columns, trying to get the plane to level out, and they're getting no response whatsoever from the plane. It's like someone came up and just switched off their control column. They can't control the plane at all. The only thing that is working on the plane is the number one and number three engines, the engines on the left and right wing of the plane. The captain decides the only way to level out the plane is to manipulate the one thing they can control, which is power to the engines on each wing. For some reason, the plane right now wants to turn to the right, and the plane's descending, so Captain Al Haynes decides to drop the power of the left engine, engine one, to idle, and he increases the power to the engine on the right wing, engine number three. This finally levels out the plane, and it starts climbing in altitude again. Unbeknownst to the cockpit crew, seated in first class at seat 5F is Denny Fitch, 
a United Airlines training check airman, a man whose job it is to train pilots for United Airlines. Fitch was just training pilots for five days in Denver. He was headed back to Chicago for a three-day break, and obviously he can tell that there's a major issue with the plane. He stops a flight attendant and tells her that if the captain would like his help, he'd be happy to lend a hand. The flight attendant Jan Brown informs Captain Hayes that Fitch is on the plane, and Haynes tells Jan to get Fitch into the cockpit immediately. It's now 3.29 p.m., 13 minutes into the emergency, and Fitch comes into the cockpit where Captain Haynes informs him, we don't have any flight controls. See what you can see at the back of the cabin, will ya? The first officer says to Fitch, go back and look out the wing and see what we got. So Fitch leaves the cockpit, goes back into the passenger cabin to look out the window. The first officer asks again the status of hydraulics to second officer Dvorak. What's the hydraulic quantity? Dvorak responds, down to zero. First officer records ask, on all of them? Dvorak responds, yeah, all the quantity is gone. All the pressure is gone. Captain Haynes then says, we're not going to make the runway, fellas. We're going to have to ditch this son of a bitch and hope for the best. Denny Fitch, the training check airman, returns from the passenger cabin and informs the captain that his ailerons on each wing are both standing up. This is highly unusual. Usually... One aileron on one wing is up, while the other aileron on the other opposite wing is down, or vice versa. There's never really a case where both are up, but Fitch reports that both ailerons are up. The plane has now descended 17,000 feet, so already it's lost 20,000 feet. And Fitch asks the captain what he can do to help. And Captain Haynes tells Fitch to take over the control of the throttle for the two engines. The captain and first officer are still trying to get control of their control columns, and their control columns are not responding to their efforts. They try and use flaps and slats and quickly discover that they can't because hydraulics are gone. They can only control the two engines, the power to the two engines. Captain Haynes explains to Fitch that he shut down the number two engine, and Fitch explains to the captain that as the plane descends, the air will become more dense and they should be able to level out the plane a little bit better. Haynes responds, we didn't do this thing in my last performance check in a simulator, and everyone in the cockpit laughs. That's one aspect that I found pretty interesting about this flight. I think everybody kind of finds it interesting about this flight. The guys in the cockpit really communicated well with one another, and tried to keep their cool under these incredibly stressful circumstances. This flight would go on to be taught as a great example of CRM, or Cockpit Resource Management. Even though the plane was the responsibility of Captain Haynes, he was very open to any advice his first officer records, or second officer Dvorak, or even Denny Fitch, a guy that was sitting in first class 10 minutes ago. There was no battle of egos, just four experienced guys in a cockpit trying to troubleshoot this one in a billion situation of a plane flying with no control, trying to figure out if they can get the plane on the ground by only controlling the power to two engines. They used all the resources they had at their disposal to try and troubleshoot this very unique problem. There was great teamwork in the cockpit and with the flight attendants and the crew in general. At one point during the ordeal, Fitch says to Captain Haynes in the cockpit, I tell you what, we'll get a beer when this is done. Captain Haynes replies, well, I don't drink, but I'll sure as hell have one. So Captain Haynes decides the airport that they have the best shot of making is Sioux City, Iowa. So they start dumping fuel to get lighter because the plane's 330,000 pounds, and they start preparing for an approach to Sioux City Airport. They can only turn right, so if they want to go left, they have to make a 270-degree 
right turn to go left. Kind of like if you're in your car and there's some issue and you can't, let's say you weren't able to turn left. If you wanted to turn left, what you would actually have to do is make three consecutive right turns. Well, the plane has to do kind of the same thing. If they want to make a left turn, they have to make a 270 degree right turn to go in the direction that they want to go. So the plane's constantly fighting to go to the right, and it's also doing a roller coaster pattern in the sky. In the world of aviation, it's known as a fugoid, where the plane keeps falling in altitude, picking up speed, and then climbing and losing that speed, only to fall again, pick up speed, and then climb again. Once again, to use a car analogy, it's kind of like you're driving up a hill and you lose speed right at the top and then you plummet down the hill and you go real fast only to encounter another hill and go up that hill and lose speed again. Fitch is in the cockpit controlling the power to the number one and number three engines, trying to keep the plane in the air, keep it leveled out, and pull it out of this up and down cycle. They also have a discussion about what to do about landing gear. Landing gear usually comes down via hydraulic systems and the hydraulics are gone. They decide if they open the landing gear doors, that gravity will pull at the landing gear and will just pull it down. The landing gear will fall out and lock into place. They also think that maybe if the landing gear drops down, this might push a little bit of the hydraulic fluid back into the hydraulic systems and maybe, just maybe, this will give them a little bit of their flight controls back. On the other hand, they're a little bit worried because they are just starting to figure out how to fly this plane. They got to be level by manipulating engine power, and they're worried that throwing a new variable into the mix, like having the landing gear down, might throw off their ability to control the plane, or just might be a whole new problem that they have to figure out. They decided to deploy the landing gear, and luckily they were right. The gear drops down into place, but they don't get any boost to their flight controls. But the landing gear does create the situation where the plane's a little bit more level. It increases the stability of the flight a little bit. The landing gear was extended at 3.48 p.m., 32 minutes after the number two engine went out. In Sioux City at the airport, they're preparing for a crash landing. Loads of emergency personnel and fire trucks are on a closed-down runway, awaiting the arrival of United Flight 232. Flight 232 is expected to land at runway 31, which is 9,000 feet long. It's the longest runway at that airport thus giving the plane the best shot at slowing down and not overrunning the runway. The Sioux City Control Tower says to the captain, United 232 Heavy, wind is currently 360 at 11360 at 11, you're cleared to land on any runway. Captain Haynes replies, Roger, you want to be particular and make it a runway, huh? So they've been cleared for any open runway, but Flight 232 comes out of its turn on approach to the airport, and they're lined up with the closed down runway the runway with all the fire trucks and ambulances and emergency services, runway 22. Since they can't maneuver the plane how they'd like to, they quickly radio over to the air traffic control tower that there's going to be a change of plan. They're going to keep on going straight and land on this closed down runway with all the emergency vehicles on it. What? Why? Well, uh, they found it very difficult to maneuver the plane, and they still had time to communicate this to them. So, so when the, were they asking people to clear off the runway? Is that Yeah, exactly. When the captain oh. informs the tower that they want to land on the closed runway, the tower responds, that's a closed runway, sir. That'll work, sir. We're getting the equipment off the runway. And all the emergency personnel quickly scramble to get all the cars and trucks off the runway, which is 6,600 feet long. At the end of runway 22 is a cornfield, and the cockpit also thought, hey, if we overrun the runway, we'll just run into this cornfield. Maybe that'll slow us down. Now the plane is in its final approach. 
they're going to have to be landing at a very high rate of speed, basically 250 miles an hour, which is 100 miles an hour faster than you usually are going when you land. Usually when you're landing, you slow down, but you can maintain some stability by deploying flaps and slats. But since their hydraulics are gone, they don't have flaps or slats, so they're going to have to try landing the plane at 250 miles an hour. Another issue is that when they do land, they won't have any brakes because, you guessed it, the brakes run off the hydraulics and the hydraulics are gone. Captain Haynes and Fitch think they might have enough fluid in the brakes for one shot. Fitch tells Haynes, braking will be a one-shot deal. Just mash it. Mash it once. That's all you get. At 3.59 p.m., the announcement is made to brace for landing. The plane is quickly sinking to the earth at a rate of over 1,600 feet per minute. Fitch says, I'll put the spoilers on the touch, meaning landing. Captain Haynes, get the brakes on with me. Pull the power back. That's right. Pull the left one back. First officer record says, close him off. Haynes, left turn. Record says, pull him off. He's asking for the throttles to be reduced. Fitch responds, nah, I can't pull him off or we'll lose it. That's what's turning you. Record says, okay. Captain Haynes, left. Left throttle. Left, 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 left. Everybody stay in brace. God. At 4 p.m., United Flight 232's right wing strikes the ground at Sioux City Airport, followed by the right landing gear. The plane's right wing ignited upon impact, and the plane broke apart into several pieces. A large chunk of the fuselage rolled upside down and into a nearby cornfield. Debris was scattered across the entire airport. Shockingly, 185 people survived, along with the four men in the cockpit. Shortly after the accident, survivors started wandering out of the cornfield toward the airport. It's like a scene from a movie. The cockpit wasn't discovered for 35 minutes after the crash because it had been so mangled and it was unrecognizable. It had broken off from the rest of the passenger cabin. Nine helicopters and 34 ambulances tended to survivors of the crash. 111 people were killed, a large chunk of them from smoke inhalation from the resulting fire from the crash. But it was a miracle that 185 people survived a landing in a plane that had lost all its flight controls and was being flown simply by controlling the power of two engines. So what happened on United Flight 232? Why did they lose flight controls? We know there was a huge bang at 3.16 p.m., and then the number two engine wouldn't work, then all three hydraulic systems went down at the same time, but what exactly occurred? Well, in the ensuing investigation, it was discovered that the number two engine not only became inoperable, it basically exploded. The titanium fan disc in the number two engine had a fatigue crack in it due to a contamination in the melting process, the process by which the titanium fan disc was originally created. At first, there was a microscopic cavity in the fan disc that eventually became a microscopic crack, which grew very slowly over the next 17 years of the engine's existence. Unfortunately, inspectors never noticed the crack, and eventually the disc fractured mid-flight, exploding violently at 3.16 p.m. on July 19, 1989, on United Flight 232. Like a pipe bomb, this fan disc sprayed shrapnel at the horizontal stabilizer of the tail of the plane. So this cracked fan disc and subsequent spraying of metal has three side effects. First, it renders the number two engine inoperable. Second, like a one in a billion shot, it manages to breach all three hydraulic systems. 
Each of the DC-10's three hydraulic systems run through the tail of the plane. There's three hydraulic systems to increase redundancy. So if one system goes down, you still have two to operate your flight controls. Even if two of them go down, you'll still get some of your flight controls with the remaining one hydraulic system. Well, this miracle explosion of the number two engine manages to take out all three hydraulic systems in one event. Third, the spray of metal from the number two engine also damages the tail of the plane and the horizontal stabilizer, causing the plane to constantly want to veer to the right. So to summarize, the fan disc of the number two engine was cracked due to a defect in the titanium it was made out of. That tiny crack was not properly identified by inspection teams at United. The crack spreads on the fan disc over time, and eventually it caused an explosion of metal from the number two engine mid-flight, destroying the number two engine, taking down all three hydraulic systems, which kills flight controls, and it damages the horizontal stabilizer on the plane, causing the plane to have this tendency to turn to the right. The NTSB report stated, the probable cause of this accident was the inadequate consideration given to human factors limitations in the inspection and quality control procedures used by United Airlines Engine Overhaul Facility, which resulted in the failure to detect a fatigue crack originating from a previously undetected metallurgical defect located in a critical area of the Stage 1 fan disc that was manufactured by General Electric Aircraft Engines. The subsequent catastrophic disintegration of the disc resulted in the liberation of debris in a pattern of distribution and with energy levels that exceeded the level of protection provided by design features of the hydraulic systems that operate the DC-10's flight controls. So now we ask ourselves, how did this make flying safer? How did the crash of United Flight 232 improve the safety of air travel today? Well, we learned that the process by which titanium fan discs were made at the time was flawed. A vast inspection was required for all existing planes with similar titanium fan discs, and the process for titanium was altered to include higher temperatures and a triple vacuum process that would cut down on the likelihood of future defects that could lead to cracks. Next, DC-10 planes were modified and outfitted with new hydraulic fuses, which prevent hydraulic systems from being completely drained of fluid if they sustain damage in a particular area. This cuts off the damage area so it doesn't infect the entirety of the system. Future planes were designed with these hydraulic fuses as well to prevent a complete loss of flight controls in the event that a hydraulic system is damaged. The NTSB recommended that new research was needed in the field of inspections and how they're carried out, especially for vital parts of a plane like engine components. They encouraged embracing more redundancy, having more thorough inspections, more oversight, a second set of eyes on these critical areas like the engine and its components. I actually have a question about that. Yeah. So with the crack that you were describing in the, um, the fan mm -hmm. disc, uh, was it so tiny that it wouldn't be detectable to human eyes? I think it, at the very end, it should have been detected without question. I think the process by which they do it is to spray it with a paint or a dye. Mm -hmm. And then the, if the dye sinks into the crack, you can see that it's sunk into mm. the crack. I think that's how they could tell when they reassembled the fan disc in the investigation that it should have been detected. So I think that the way that it started out, it was a cavity because the titanium 
process that they used led to some impurities being in the titanium. Mm -hmm. So there was a teeny cavity, a microscopic cavity that nobody could see with the naked eye, but they should have been able to pick out from quality control. I think they like blasted with like ultrasound. They should have caught it. They should have caught it in the quality control check. They didn't do that. And then this cavity eventually turned into a teeny crack. And then that crack just grew over time. So it's sort of a combination of uh, a defect and a tiny bit of human error. I think, yeah. Everything in the process, it was the material it was made of. The people that made the material um, didn't pick up on the fact that it was defective. Uh, The people that inspected the engine over the years didn't see the crack. It was a small crack, but it grew to a larger size size that they should have picked up on. Hmm. So to summarize... We learned inspections needed to be more rigorous and thorough. We learned that we had a flaw in the material that we were making engines out of, so we needed to improve the quality of titanium that we were using. And we learned that we needed to add a new system to isolate damage to hydraulic systems if they occur, so pilots can still have some of their flight controls in the event of a damaging event to their hydraulic systems. The crash of United Airlines Flight 232 generated a ton of media attention at the time. The pilots were lauded as heroes for their feat of flying a plane with no flight controls, flying by only using the engine throttles and thus saving the lives of 185 human beings. Captain Al Haynes gave several thousand talks after the flight. Even though he was called a hero, that was a label that he never truly embraced. He said he was just one of four guys in a cockpit trying to do his job. Haynes said at a 25-year anniversary press conference that was held in Sioux City in 2014 that he struggled with survivor's guilt, and his psychologist told him that he'll never get over the crash, that he just needed to learn how to live with it and accept it. Captain Haynes said that he'd given so many talks after the crash that he started to see the talks as his way of getting over the event, getting over his PTSD, All the money that he received from these talks, he donated to various causes and scholarships for survivors and people affected by the accident. He never profited one dollar from that. That's really admirable. I agree. Uh, Captain Al Haynes, in addition to being an airline pilot, was a volunteer Little League umpire for 33 years, and he was also an, an announcer for high school football in the Seattle area for 25 years. Captain Al Haynes died on August 25th, 2019, only 12 days ago. Aww. But, so this uh, podcast is dedicated to him and his family. That his family has to be so proud of him. He, without question, I think the point of life is to make the world a better place. Make the world a better place for your family and neighbors and friends. And this guy, without question, saved, you know, helped save 184 other human beings. And his family should know that he... He's a good human being, a quality human being, and we're happy that he was here with us. Yeah, it seems like he did everything right in a horrifying situation. Yeah, he kept his cool. United Airlines stated in a press release after Al Haynes' death, We thank him for his service throughout his career at United and for his exceptional efforts aboard Flight UA-232 on July 19, 1989. His legacy will endure. The training check airman was seated, that the guy that was seated in first class, Denny Fitch, was the star of an Errol Morris documentary that was quite good. I'd recommend checking it out. 
It's called Leaving Earth. Have you seen any Errol Morris documentaries? I've seen Thin Blue Line. Very similar vibe. I would love to see this one. I really love Errol Morris. Yeah, you could tell he gives just a long interview. The entire um, movie is just him giving an interview. And you can just tell he's just a good quality human being, that he really cares about people, cared about his job, took this event very seriously. Um, He tells this heartbreaking story of a woman that confronted him shortly after the crash and said, you killed my daughter. Wow, that is really heartbreaking. It's pretty unfair. I understand the lady was upset, but he goes on to say, and with almost tears in his eyes, that he willingly would have given up his life for any of the passengers behind him. That was his, he, he tells the story of how his wife came into the hospital when he came to, and he could read from her face that people were affected by the uh, crash that not everybody survived mm. and she told him that uh, passengers had died and he said he responded to that by sobbing for three mm. days straight he said he couldn't stop crying for three days wow i can't imagine so i included that story about the lady that came up and said that to him just to show these guys deal with so much they deal with a stressful situation he himself was forever changed and injured because of this accident and on top of that you have the you know burden of people coming up and saying things like that to you it's got to be a tough situation yeah i mean the fact that he was able to save as many people as he did is is a miracle and should be celebrated yeah i agree i think there was a i saw some story that said that there were 28 flight simulations that they ran in a simulator, um, trying to simulate this flight. If they could have done anything that would have landed the plane perfectly, and all twenty of them result twenty-eight of them resulted in a crash where no one would have survived. So Denny Fitch is in there altering these throttles, using his intuition, flying by the seat of his pants, and he was able to get the plane crash landed to the point that 185 people survived. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. A number of factors contributed to people surviving this accident. First The weather was good. Visibility wasn't an issue. It was daytime. They could see. Second, the crew communicated really well with one another. They all joined forces to try and get this plane without controls on the ground and save some lives. Next, there was a shift change at the local hospital, and they picked up the story that this emergency was unfolding, so they kind of had double-staffed hospitals, which was perfect for dealing with an emergency like this. Also, the Iowa Air National Guard was on duty, happened to be at the airport, which meant 285 trained human beings were there, literally an army ready to help assist with rescue efforts. So that's the story of United Flight 232. Were there any uh, thoughts that were running through your mind while you were listening to the story, Tess? Anything that uh, you'd like to share with us? I think the thing that uh, impressed me the most was how well everyone communicated in the cockpit. I thought that was really admirable. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I did it justice, to be honest. I, when my just telling of it right now, I feel like I didn't accurately portray the CVR recording. 99% of what they were talking about was very technical. They were talking about, should we drop the landing gear? How fast should we be going? What's landing going to be like? Are we going to have brakes? But I included a lot of the joke stuff. I don't think that they were joking the entire time. But I, I wanted to make the point of them dealing with this super stressful situation and dealing with it by injecting some points of levity here and there, which kept everybody, I think, kind of calm. You know, right. I feel like a panicky mind 
probably doesn't make the best decisions. And I feel like the fact that they were able to keep a little bit of jokes here and there mm-hmm. probably just made people a little bit more calm, maybe made better decisions yeah. because of it. It shows they had hope. The fact that they were talking about getting a beer when all this was over showed they envisioned living through this. Yeah. And I'm sure they went on and got that beer. So yeah, I hope uh, they did. I think they also, this, this is something we should pro- should have probably included in how this flight made flying safer. I bet they train people with this CVR recording. They said, this is how you should deal with a stressful event. If it happens in the cockpit, I think in the world of aviation for a long time, they had an issue with captains being the domineering force and second officers or first officers being scared to speak up to the captain and say, look, man, you're doing something wrong. And the captain, you don't want to upset your boss. You know, you want to get promoted. And there's this like hierarchical structure and you don't want to, you know, step on anybody's toes. Well, in this situation, there was just a really level playing field and the captain was willing to take any advice that came to him. Second officer, First officer, guy in first class, we just need to solve this problem. We're all human beings trying to troubleshoot in a life or death situation. And it doesn't really make sense to be overly aware of hierarchy in a situation like that. I agree. I agree. Like if I think there were just like no egos. There was no masculine, I'm the tough guy, I'm the guy in charge. It was like, hey, this is a very unique situation. Get all hands on deck. Anybody got an idea? I'm happy to entertain it. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like delegating is something that he did really well. He delegated different tasks to you. Yeah, he gave the uh, he gave Denny Fitch control of the throttles, which was the one thing controlling the plane. I don't know that they knew at the time that their, you know, manipulating of the control columns probably wasn't doing much. In the moment, they were like, might as well just pull really hard this side if it's going to the right. Maybe it's doing a little something. I don't want to find out what happens if I let go, you know. Hmm. But the fact that he took a guy from first class, granted he worked for United Airlines, and said, hey, you're in charge of the throttles, I think was a good suspension of ego. Just yeah. realizing, like, we need everybody's help. Yeah, it kind of um, felt, it reminded me of, it felt like the opposite of what we talked about with the Air France flight. Mm-hmm. a few months ago where there really wasn't any open communication and delegating. And that was sort of yeah. one of the things that worked against the people flying the plane. I think that's an excellent point. I think in that, that flight, bad communication, this flight, amazing communication. I also thought this flight was interesting. We're, we're the plane crash podcast here. This is our first real plane crash landing. I mean, if there is like a, the quintessential crash landing, this is it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, One thing Al Haynes um, mentioned in some of his interviews was how grateful he was to the people of Sioux City, Sioux City, Iowa. Um, He was grateful to the people at the hospital, the first responders, the people he communicated with at air traffic control. Apparently, um, they needed blood. You know, anytime there's an emergency, you need blood, um, people to donate blood. And three times, they got three times the amount of blood they needed because there were just lines down the block. Everybody from Sioux City rallied and they were like, you know what? We're going to go out and just help out. So it's a great heartwarming story of people banding together and getting the job done. Yeah. Thank you, Sioux City. And thank you, Captain Al Haynes. Uh, one other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, this crash inspired the plot to the Jeff Bridges movie, Fearless. Have you seen that? 
I have not, but it's on my bucket list. I hear it's a really good movie. I saw it like a month ago, and I had no plan on uh, researching this particular crash. There was no connection to it, but I saw it a month ago, and it was really good. Yeah. I liked it. Jeff Bridges was great. Uh, Rosie Perez is in it, and I think she got nominated for either Best Actress or Best Supporting Actress for uh, an Oscar, but uh, I thought it was a really compelling movie. It was okay. great. Okay, yeah, I'll check it out. Well, I think that's going to do it for United Airlines Flight 232. Uh, recently, on August 29th, 2019, on an American Airlines flight from Chicago to Omaha, a miniature horse was brought on board by her owner. The horse is named Flirty, and her owner uses Flirty as a service horse. Oh, Flirty. Fun and Flirty. Her owner said that Flirty lost her balance a few times as the plane was ascending and descending, but she took a nap while they uh, hit cruising altitude. Oh, nice. A flirty little nap. Um, How do you feel about miniature horses on planes? A lot better than I do about snakes on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'd much rather deal with a miniature horse on a plane than a snake on a plane. Yeah, I think if if it floats your boat, you should... Uh, yeah go th- for it i think it'd be comforting to see a uh, miniature horse on the plane and just pet it and be like oh a friend anything that keeps you in the moment is good yeah i'm i'm in favor of miniature horses i also discovered another interesting tidbit this week would you like to hear it sure uh the longest flight currently offered by a commercial airline is singapore airlines nonstop route from newark to singapore the flight covers 9,540 miles, and it's 17 hours and 50 minutes long. Almost 18 wow. hours. It's a pretty long flight, That huh? is amazing. I think from now on, I won't be complaining about the six, seven-hour flights. No, that's a walk in the park. I'll say to myself, somewhere, somebody's on an 18-hour flight to Singapore. Exactly. I hope those me. people get slippers. That's all I can say. Yeah. They're oh. going to need three meals. That's like three-quarters of a day. Yeah. You can't sleep your way through that flight. No, definitely not. You could take two eight-hour naps and still have to deal with two hours of the flight. (laughs) You can't sleep your way through everything. (laughs) Oh, how I wish I could at some (laughs) time. Well, um, I think that's going to do it for our episode eight of the Plane Crash Podcast. Thank you to Tess Andrade for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here as always. Thank you to you, the listener out there that's been uh, supporting us and writing reviews on iTunes and following us and befriending us on Twitter. We love friends. Can never have too many friends. Um, We'll be back soon. Um, Probably in another week or two, we'll have another uh, podcast for you. I hope all of you are having an amazing week and doing your best at whatever you've chosen to do with your life. If you're a construction worker, I hope you're building an amazing house or building. If you're a cook, I hope you're making the most delicious food you can. And I hope you are also booking a trip somewhere. Uh, You deserve a little vacation, a little break from your hard work, and I give you my full support. Go online, book a trip, and we'll be back soon. I hope you guys have a great week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.